As you're opening your Bibles to 1 Samuel 22, I'll just recap kind of where we are in the narrative. David is pursued by Saul, and Saul wants to kill him. And there's no refuge. He's, he's been everywhere he can think to go, and no one can keep him safe. He's been to the king's son. He's been to the temple or the tabernacle. He's been to Samuel. He's been to the priests. And then finally he goes to Gath, the Philistine, one of the Philistine capitals. It'd be like, I was thinking, what is that like? It would maybe be like General George Patton. In the middle of World War II, he he fell into disfavor for slapping a guy in a hospital. But anyway, he fell into disfavor and he thought he was going to be fired. And it'd be like him running to Berlin for safety or something. It was ridiculous, but this is what David did. And God miraculously delivered David. And we see so much good coming out of it, not just as an example to us, just to pursue God, even in the midst of mistakes and uh, regretful decisions to pursue God, but we also see Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, which David wrote right after that, which we have so many wonderful parts of Scripture. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you, Psalm 56. I will trust in God. I will not be afraid. You've kept count of my tossings or wanderings. You put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? I know that God is for me. I trust in God. I will not be afraid. We would not have this precious part of Scripture were it not for sin. Were it not for David and his decisions. But it seems that David is, is somewhat changed in 1 Samuel 22. He's no longer running all over. He seems like he's more steady in his love for the Lord and in his faithfulness to God. This is 1 Samuel 22. It's a long passage. Please remain seated, but hear God's word. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree, on the height, with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. To lie in wait, as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. 
I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, and the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant, or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day eighty-five persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life, seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Let us pray. Lord, what a weighty and disturbing text we have read. We pray that you would train our hearts. Train our hearts to see your providence, to see how you turn evil to good, to understand that you are over all things, that we might comfort our own hearts. Lord, help us to understand these scriptures and may your spirit inspire us and encourage us. And let all the words out of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, in Jesus' name, amen. I have felt like I think David felt before, where I did something foolish, and it was maybe quiet for a little while, and then it all came tumbling down upon me, only much, much worse, all the effects of my sin. Now, was it wrong for him to go see the priests? I'm not saying that. But I'm sure he regrets that he went there and did not disclose his mission to them, that he lied to them about what he did. Certainly, Ahimelech and all of the family might have been more wary about going to Saul. 
if he had had any understanding of what was going on. So certainly David feels distressed for the decisions that he's made and he regrets some of the things he's done. You can feel it in the text. And imagine the weight that he felt that the priests of God had just died. And he felt like it was his fault. How is this going to turn out? What is happening? Well, he's come face to face with an antichrist. So we're going to talk about the futility of antichrists. I'm not talking about end times. I'm talking about antichrist in the sense of First John where he says many antichrists have already come. We'll look at God's providential care and the hatred of antichrists. Small a, small a antichrists throughout history. Verses 1 through 5, we see that David departed to the cave of Adullam. So he had traveled to the west to Gath toward the sea. And he left Gath and went somewhere between Bethlehem and Gath. Right in the middle, there's a cave, a cave of Adullam. That's where he went. Now it's south of where Saul was. Saul's a Benjamite, so it's south of the tribe of Benjamin. It's safely in the territory of Judah. This is David's home tribe. It's his home place. It's probably five miles from where he grew up in Bethlehem. This is kind of where he probably knew this cave. He knew this place well. Seems like it would be a difficult place for Saul to get to, for Saul to, to surprise David in this place. Because just like the people of Benjamin were drawn to Saul, so the people of Judah seemed to be drawn to David. But David's family, we see, is also in distress. His father, Jesse, comes to him there at the cave, and his mother, they must be elderly, these old people, and all of his father's house come to him, adding to his burden this weight of responsibility now as well as those who were in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul and in distress. They all gather around David, the one who killed Goliath, this young hero, the commander of Saul's armies who led the armies in great victory. He's now in a cave. He's not eating at the king's table. He's surrounded by these malcontents, these people who are just in distress. And his family is scared, and they're there as well. So what does he do? He goes to the king of Moab. This is about a week's journey, if he's with elderly people, with the young, with children. So they walk for a week to Moab. Moab's on the other side, the the eastern side of the Jordan. And the Moabites are related to the Israelites, if you remember, through Lot. So even their heritage is somewhat similar. Similar family. Maybe so long since that they don't even recognize it. But still, they went to Moab. And he asked the king to look over his elderly father, Jesse, and his mother, until I know what God will do for me, he says. So why? Why would the king of Moab even consider this? And why would David go to Moab? 
in the first place. There's a couple of reasons that might be right. We can't know for sure. I mean, the king of Moab might have had a real hatred for Saul and thought to protect this, this upstart's family would be uh, a thorn in Saul's flesh, supporting this young, this young king-to-be. But I think there's probably more going on here. David's great-grandmother was named what? Ruth. Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Jesse's, there's Jesse in front of the king of Moab. Jesse's grandmother was Ruth. So the king of Moab would think maybe more favorably toward this union, this watching over of David's family because they have Moabite blood. So the king of Moab might be supporting David for that reason as well. It might be both of those things. And then if David really did take the throne, there would be kind of a a friendly relationship between the king of Moab and the new king David. Whatever the reason, the Moabite king takes David's family upon himself. So why am I stressing this so much? Because there's something beautiful happening that we can see in, in God's tapestry of providence. When you go back, do you think Naomi ever considered that all of her grief, she lost her husband while they were in Moab, she lost both of her sons? Imagine. Imagine to lose your spouse and then all of your children. What heavy grief she felt. Do you think she ever thought that that grief could be part of God's plan? to preserve the type of Christ, the type above all types of Christ in the Old Testament was David, to preserve David and his life and his family. Do you ever think Naomi thought about it? Probably not. God accomplishes everything according to his plan. This is providence. His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And you may never see the outworking of it in your lifetime. It's just beautiful to consider. I spoke to a a man this afternoon who was talking about his walking away from God, even though his parents were Christians and prayed for him. And he walked away from God at 18. And for the next 35 years, he did everything he could to stay far from God. And then God brought him back and saved him and opened his eyes. And I said, did your parents know that God had answered their prayers? And he said, no. Tears were coming down his face. He said, no. They were already dead. And yet they saw, if they were a part of the cloud of witnesses in heaven, they saw that their son had come to faith. We don't know what God is doing. But we know that it's all good. We should all be encouraged to never give up praying for our loved ones. But think about Ruth. Do you think Ruth, Ruth, who was David's great-grandmother, who followed her old widowed mother-in-law, 
who left everything, saying, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your people will be my God. Do you think Ruth ever thought that her great-grandson would bring his parents to the king of Moab because of her, because of her faithfulness, her faithfulness to Yahweh and to Naomi? Do you think she thought that that would ever work out to somehow preserve David's family? Probably not. It's incredible to think that her union with Boaz would produce a great-grandson who would be the type of Christ referenced throughout all the ages, even by Christ himself. In Revelation, he says, I'm the root of David. And all through the New Testament, we see him proclaimed as the son of David. Jesus Christ, because of Ruth, because of Naomi's suffering, because of Ruth's suffering and Ruth's faithfulness, we see God wrapping all this up in such a beautiful way. This instructs our hearts to have heavenly thoughts when we experience difficulties in life. We may not see the, the good fruit in our lifetime even, but we, we trust God. That He's working it for good in the midst of great suffering. God never promises to give us health and healing in our lifetime. Some people may be called to suffer their whole lives and then, and then move on to glory. And you think, what a waste of, of a life. A person did not get to go and do, and it's just the health was so bad. And yet when we think like that, we're not thinking God's thoughts. Because God works in a much more big and miraculous and wonderful way. He works all things according to His perfect plan, and it's always for good for the good of the church, for the good of all of his children, and for future generations of the faithful. I think we learn that from these first five verses. Thank God for Ruth. Thank God for Naomi. Thank God for Boaz, for faithful men and women. And that's helpful when you go into verses 6 through 19 and you see the, the Antichrist that is Saul. And this, this part of Scripture, we see that the, the veil is clearly removed. Or you might be wondering, well, is Saul part of God's family? Is he, is he someone who's just kind of wandered a little bit? No, he's an antichrist. He hates God. He hates God's people. It's no longer even a question. He's an opponent of God. And I call him an Antichrist because John does. In 1 John 2.18, he says, Children, it's the last hour. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Many have come. It seems that there will be a capital A Antichrist right before our Lord returns. But there's also a spirit of Antichrist that has inspired men and women throughout world history to deceive and persecute God's people. And Satan, of course, is the ultimate Antichrist, always seeking to deceive and murder the people of God. So we see from all of our understanding of Scripture, from Cain, who murdered Abel, all the way to the end of Scripture, Antichrists everywhere. And they continue in the world, their goal to destroy the people of God. 
Think of all the men and women in the Bible who have embodied the spirit of Antichrist. Cain. This is just a short list. Cain. You can, you can add to it. Cain and Lamech and Pharaoh and Goliath and Saul, Jezebel, Athaliah, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod. After the Bible, all the Roman emperors. Muhammad, Hitler, Stalin, and on and on and on. So here Saul is revealed as another antichrist. He works for the enemy. So we have David, who's a type of Christ. We have Saul, who's a type of the Antichrist to come. So what is Saul doing? He's conspiring with his most intimate associates in verses 6 and 7. And it kind of sounds like a pity party, doesn't it? How come nobody talks to me? How come nobody will tell me where David is? None of you are sorry for me. And then you have Doeg the Edomite. I think we should despise Doeg. I mean, certainly we don't like Saul. He's an enemy of God. But Doeg, Doeg is like, is like the tattletale on the playground. He just, he just wants to be noticed. And Doeg tells him, Oh, I know. I know who's helping David. It's the priest of Nob. It's the priests of God. So Saul calls them and Ahimelech seems to have no idea about anything. I don't think he's lying. He says, I don't know anything about this, small or great. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech. And he commands his guards to kill the priests of God. And these guards would not touch them. They would not touch the priests of Yahweh. They had enough sense to know that attacking a priest of Yahweh was attacking Yahweh himself. They would not do it. So he turned to this Edomite. And you remember the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Esau. The Edomites had always been enemies of the Jews. Even when they came out of Egypt to the Promised Land, the Edomites were not treating them as brothers. They treated them as enemies. So Doeg, the non-Israelite, the Edomite, kills all the priests all by himself. Think of the bloodlust of this man. And then he goes to Nob and puts the entire city to the sword. And one day he killed 85 priests, and then he went on to Nob. In verse 19 he says, The city of the priests, and he put it to sword. What a terrible and horrible thing. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. We're supposed to remember... 1 Samuel 15, when you read that phrase, where God told Saul to annihilate the Amalekites.
1 Samuel 15, verse 6. That's not it. One moment. Verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. He's talking to Saul. This is God talking to Saul. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This isn't God being arbitrary. This is a people who have been in rebellion against God for over 400 years. And God has shown mercy after mercy after mercy and been patient and long-suffering. And their evil has only grown. And Saul is to be an instrument of God's wrath to kill man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. And Saul does not do it. Saul keeps alive Agag, the king, and all of the best things of the land. Ironic, then, and that's when God removed his favor from Saul, removed his blessing from Saul, rejected Saul completely because he refused to listen to God, to obey God. And now we read that what Saul was supposed to do to the enemies of God, Saul does to the priests of God. Almost verbatim. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. And you can feel the grief and the irony dripping from the pen of Samuel who wrote this, or whoever wrote it. Saul's hatred for all of God's people. But here's the special thing, if there is anything to be learned from it. It's a losing proposition. That's what we learn from this passage. For the enemies of God, even in their hatred and opposition to God, they're playing right into God's hand. The kingdom of God will prosper. The word of God will go forth and be fulfilled. The enemies of God carrying out their schemes against the people of God only confirm His word and His promises. And even the most wicked actions of men are part of His majestic providence in some way. Dr. Dale Ralph Davis says that the enemies of God find themselves completely outclassed by the sovereign providence of God and the truth of His word. You see, by killing the priests of God, as wicked as this is and as horrible as it is, they fulfilled the prophecy against Eli some 50 years before. Found in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli had not been faithful to God. His sons were a reproach to God. And God told Samuel, Behold, the days are coming, verse 31, when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. So this is all the people that were just killed. They were descendants of Eli, the priest. There will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on the prosperity that will be bestowed on Israel. There will not even be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you who shall not cut off from my altar 
shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So what a horrible judgment against Eli. And what a horrible execution of this judgment at the hand of wicked, wicked Doeg. And this principle is important for us to realize that even the most wicked acts of men play right into the hand of God. He's not the author of evil. He will not be imputed evil ever. We see this most clearly in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Jesus' own crucifixion, the most evil act of all time in the history of man, where Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's God's providence. What? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That wicked act was used in the providence of God to save the world. What was true for the crucifixion of Christ certainly is true for all of the works of Antichrist throughout the ages. God will accomplish his purposes. He will gather his kingdom and get all the glory, all of it, all the glory to God. So it helps us when you see wickedness in the world and you're, you're tempted to despair and to wonder, God, what are you doing? God is using the wickedness of man to work something majestic, something glorious. And yet we still cry out to him, how long, O Lord? How long? How long must we see the effects of the fall displayed so horribly among men? Back to 1 Samuel 22 for the conclusion. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. Well, one of the sons of Halimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. So one of the sons escaped. God always preserves a remnant. He will never let his church be destroyed completely. He always preserves one. Usually many, many more. And Abiathar actually became priest of David and was with David for his entire 40-year reign. He was his priest. And even into the reign of Solomon. Solomon, Solomon eventually put him out of Jerusalem. But Abiathar was able to carry the ark of God into the city of Jerusalem. Imagine that. God always preserves a remnant. And similarly, throughout all history, he has done the same. Even in the midst of the most serious threats to life and limb, to a country, to a people, to a family, he will preserve his remnant. He will get all glory. Which is why he always says, do not be afraid. Remember, I am your God. You are my people. Do not be afraid. He preserves his people and he always has. He's a good shepherd. Not a bad shepherd. He's a good father, not a bad father. He's a good king. And he'll always provide a remnant for himself. Just look at, look at a couple of the most wonderful examples with me. You remember Pharaoh, what is Pharaoh wanting to do? He's wanting to kill all the male children of, of Israel. Remember that? Did he kill them all? No, there was a courageous woman who had a baby and hid it. Moses, the Savior of Israel. 
You remember when Jezebel wanted to destroy all the prophets of God, all the real people of God, she wanted to destroy them all. And then she sought to destroy Elijah, and Elijah fled into the desert, and he said, God, kill me, I'm the only one left. And God said, simmer down. I've reserved 7,000 for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Or Athaliah, Athaliah, the the mother-in-law of the king, who almost single-handedly destroyed the whole kingly line in Judah. All of the descendants of David, she killed everyone. But there was a courageous woman who took one of the babies, descendants of David, and and hid this, this boy named Joash in the temple, preserving the kingly line. And we see Herod, another antichrist, seeking to destroy all the baby boys in Bethlehem, literally to kill the Christ. And God preserves that one boy who would save the world. And that man was was the more perfect David. We read in verse 2 that everyone who was in distress... Everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David, and he became commander over them. This was the remnant that God had given David to support David, an unlikely bunch of people who made up David's new covenant family in God's providence. They were much like us, a bunch of misfits in distress and debt and bitter and soul. Some of you are saying in debt is right. That's how I feel. In debt and bitter in soul. Our commander is one who similarly summons those in distress. Our commander is Christ. Who was unjustly condemned to death. You think you have it bad. Unjustly condemned to death. He was perfect. Perfectly righteous. And he died a brutal death on a cross. Carrying our sin upon his shoulders. He died and was buried and rose on the third day and is now at his father's side. He knows suffering. He knows pain. He knows distress. He knows sorrow. He knows bitterness in his soul. And he, as our commander, calls to you. Come to me, all you who are weak, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is our commander calling us to the cave, to the stronghold. God will never allow his church to be destroyed, no matter how much we deserve it, no matter how great the enemy is, no matter how distressed we feel. All the plans of the Antichrist throughout the ages always play into the hand of God. We are still at at battle. We are still at war. We are called the church militant on the earth. But after Christ returns, what are we called? The church victorious. The fight will be over once and for all. We know the end of the story, so we take courage. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for your mercy, for your grace, for your love. We thank you for David. We thank you for preserving him. We thank you for faithful Naomi, faithful Ruth, for these faithful people who stood up and were counted 
during the terror of Antichrist throughout the scriptures and throughout the ages. You use unlikely people to accomplish your purposes. We thank you for each one that we've talked about. We thank you for David. We pray that as, as we see a, a world that, that seems very dark, that we would remember that the light has shone into the darkness and we are to shine as lights in this world as we shine brightly, as we face the, the persecution of the world and feel the, the, the attacks of the enemy. Lord, give us strength and give us hope. Let us never turn back. Let us always press forward to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection, to experience his sufferings and even his death, that you might be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.